0: Let's thank Mary Ann for all of her years in service. She's made a profound impact on so many lives. And uh, not just the lives am I on? Can you hear me? Not just the lives of the unborn, um, but our lives. Uh, a profound influence on my life from childhood on up, being one that would stand in the gap when very few would Marianne and uh, so thankful for you you're one of my heroes I don't say that lightly either Um, being pro-life means you're pro-life from conception to the grave and so the pro-life movement never ends (laughs) Uh, we've had to focus on the unborn because you can't focus on anything else until people have a chance to breathe really and uh, and so we are, we are about people because people are made in the image of God. And everyone uh, is, is made in the image of God, and Jesus died for everyone, and so we give our lives willingly, just like Jesus, so that others have a chance to be part of the family of God for all of eternity. And so um, if, you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can't help but be pro-life. If you have your Bibles this this morning, don't turn to Zechariah, turn to 1 Samuel. New book today. (laughs) Um, These first two Sundays, we're going to look at 1 Samuel through some unique lenses um, because of just some of the different subjects we're tackling. Bottles, baby socks, bibs, burp cloths, pacifiers, baby lotion, diapers and cribs. These are just a few things that create imagery in all of our heads and hearts and minds. Some of them bring up painful memories. Some of them bring up joy. Immediately you have a reaction whether you've been a parent or not. All of these things stir something inside of us. Uh, Being a kid growing up in the 80s, Saturday morning cartoons were an essential. I remember trying to get up as early as I could to catch cartoons, because I was only allowed to watch so many hours of cartoons on a Saturday before Dad would put me to work. And uh, I remember trying to get up as early as I could, and I think that the first cartoons were always Rocky and Bullwinkle, which was so frustrating, because those nev- episodes never ended. It was always a continuation. And then Anyway, <clears throat> but um, as much as I remember the cartoons, I remember the commercials. As an adult, I know most of the shows, the cartoon shows, were created to sell the toys. But at the time, I thought it was the opposite. And so many of those old commercials were for baby dolls. Um, Cabbage Patch Kids, and My Buddy, and kid's Sister, and Babies That Burp, and Babies That Cry, and Babies That Wet Themselves. I mean, who really, rationally, wants a baby that wets themselves? You know, like, but having girls of my own over the years, there's no shortage of requests for baby dolls. Babies and new life are imprinted on us from our earliest stages. Even my one-year-old is fascinated with babies that are smaller than him. He does this, points at him, and goes, whichever that means, but uh, he just is fascinated by them. And so it's in our nature to desire new life, to care for it, to nurture it, even when we're so young that we're still being cared for ourselves. A great tool for measuring the quality of any culture is in how they value life. Not just the life of the wealthy, the beautiful, or the powerful. People will always show favoritism to those that can benefit themselves. But I'm talking about a culture and society that treats the youngest and the most defenseless, the poor, the needy, the impaired, the challenged, and the aged. When the value of all life is diminished in the favor of those more qualified, that signals, always signals, a rapid downfall of society. You can always tell the length and the health of a society by how they treat those who are part of their membership and what criteria they follow. Thankfully, with the overturning of Roe v.ersus Wade, each state now has the right to govern how they'll value the life of the least and most defenseless, the child in the womb. Many of us, like myself, have grown up being taught the value of life supported by God's Word and wonder how it's ever possible that anyone could choose to end the life of another. And uh, over the years, being in the pro-life movement and trying to see things through different perspectives, you know, it's so easy in, in whatever the subject is to just stay in our lane, to keep our perspective, to not want to explore other people's perspectives, to try to understand how people can think and rationalize. And if we do that, we're not being able to minister like God wants us to do. He calls us to go to people and understand where their belief system comes down and and why they make the choices they do. And what I've come to realize is the reason that people are able to rationalize the taking of any human life is they've, they've removed the personhood from that individual. And we've seen this over human history. Just a couple examples. Slavery. Slavery is dependent on reducing the personhood of another person for whatever reason. And, uh, and so, you know, we, I, I'm definitely a pro-lifer, but I'm also a, a six-day creationist. And I think one of the most detrimental things that's ever happened in our, in our world culture is Darwinism, uh, because it was based on the principle that there are superior races above others. And so it, it created uh, an extreme racism in a lot of cases where those of different skin colors and, and different nationalities were considered lesser. And, uh, and so slavery is, is dependent on that. We've seen it recently in Rwanda where the, the Tutsi and the Hutu were two people groups created by English colonialism where they were the same people, but the people were divided based on the, the, the tone of their skin. The, the lighter colored were considered smarter and more educated, and the darker colored were considered more primitive. And so what ended up happening was a war between the same people group who had become divided over these kind of classifications. And of course, you have the, the, the biggest one, um, and it's, it's almost a faux pas to mention it, but you have to. When you talk about World War II era, and Hitler, and Stalin, and the others, where uh, people were sent to internment camps and concentration camps, whether they were Jews or African-American or impaired. And and so Hitler was was doing it based on an ideology that um, it was the survival of the fittest, and he was trying to speed up the acceleration of the Aryan race, the perfect race from his perspective. So as we look at 1 Samuel, we need to realize as well that, that they're going through a very dark period in their national history. The people have taken over the promised land after 400 years in Egypt, 40 years in the desert. They finally get the land, and we know the danger of this, right? How, many, how what, The most dangerous point in your life is often after you achieve the goals that you've been seeking, because then you relax. And that's exactly what they did. They didn't fully uh, obey God and, and get all the uh, other people out of the land, and so they go through this continual cycle in the book of Judges, where they're turning away from God's direction, falling deeper into idolatry and sin. And the book of Judges ends with a civil war within the nation of Israel where the tribe of Benjamin was almost entirely destroyed. And so, this is a setting in a time when the life and value of others is being superseded by a person's own personal rights. I should have made a slide for this statement, but um, if you've got a pen, you may want to take a note on it because I've been reflecting on it a lot. Anytime we put the value of our rights over the value of someone else's life, we are sinning. Anytime we put the value of our rights over someone else's life, we're sinning. And so that's the setting in which we meet Hannah. 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 1-8. There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zeph in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jerome, son of Elihu, and son of Tohu, to, to, Toha, or tohu I, I'm going to pronounce it wrong no matter what, son of Zuph of Ephraim. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Penina, Penina had, had children, but Hannah did not. Each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of Heaven's armies at the tabernacle. The priests of the Lord at the time were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, on the days Elkanah presented a sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Peninnah and to each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. So Peninnah would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same. Peninnah would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. And each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. Why are you crying, Hannah, Elkanah would say, would ask, why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having ten sons? If you've ever lived through an infertility or known someone who has, Hannah's story paints a pretty accurate picture. Hannah wants a child so badly. Her husband loves her. She can, it seems like she could have pretty much anything that she wanted, except she can't have her own child. And so undoubtedly, the question comes, hey, when are you going to have a kid of your own? When is that baby coming? When are you? And so uh, that question hurts every time it's asked, as if she can just make that happen. You can't help but compare either. When you're suffering through infer- infertility, you're happy for people that get pregnant when trying, uh, but everyone else's joy always leaves you with a bitter taste. I've shared this with you before, but I remember the moment. I think it was a uh, some holiday season. It was in the summer. It was after school was out, and uh, we were at my sister's house. She was living in Evan- Evansville, Indiana at the time, and uh, had been married for a couple years. And we were praying for the meal. And uh, and her husband uh, prayed that uh, for the family, and then prayed for the baby that was growing inside my sister, and said amen. And then that was the announcement that my sister was going to have her first child. And I remember the excitement and the joy of that. Yes, I'm going to be an uncle. But I also locked eyes with my brother. And my sister is the middle child. She's two years older than me. My brother's four years older than me. And I remember locking eyes with him and the, and the the transfer message. That we both got was this bittersweet of she's married and has kids, and neither of us are married yet. (laughs) It was like the joy in the moment, but also this, like, oh, this isn't how we planned it kind of thing. Um, And then you wonder what's wrong with you that God blesses people with children who aren't seeking it, and you're left out, and your heart aches for it. It just doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't help that Hannah. It doesn't help Hannah that Elkanah had another wife who just happens to be a fertile myrtle and verbally reminds Hannah and taunts her any chance she gets. It also causes trouble with her husband, who I'm sure wants children with Hannah, but he doesn't understand why she just can't be happy with just him. Isn't he enough for her? And so that's... The struggle. Now, I'm talking about infertility and I'm talking about children, but I think this can be true of so many different areas in our life. Whether it's having a spouse, whether it's your career, whether it's some goal that you've been pursuing and it just doesn't seem to happen, we all can relate to the feeling of having a a desire and maybe even as far as a calling that just doesn't seem to ever happen. If life weren't so precious, the lack of it wouldn't hurt so bad. It's a big difference between, you know, not getting to ride every ride at Disney World and not having a child. Yeah, in the moment you're like, "Oh, I wish I would have gotten to ride this this and that," but it fades a few hours later. The fact that she can't have a child, that pain shows how important it is. Verse 5 gives us the truth that needs to be our foundation in any discussion in life. It says that God had given her no children. If we truly believe that God is in control, that He created everything we can see and know in six days, that He has the power to heal and He has a good plan for your life, don't you think He has a plan for how every single person enters into this world? That no one sneaks into the womb without Him paying attention, Right? If we really believe all the things we say we believe about the Bible, then we know that every person comes at the right place at the right time to the right person according to God's perfect plan. What's hard to realize in the battle of infertility is that perfect timing of God opening the womb. This concept is clear and repeated multiple times in the Bible, even from the beginning. You look at the book of Genesis, the first three matriarchs, you have Sarah, you have Rebecca, and then you have Rachel, all dealing with infertility. God was teaching something in the very beginning of the budding of the nation of Israel, something about the fact that He opens up the womb, that His timing is perfect, and that we hold on to His promises when we don't receive what we desire in the moment we desire it. And with that said, every child enters this world when it's supposed to, to whom it's supposed to, and where it is supposed to. No child is a mistake. So let me add, for everyone in the room breathing, none of you are a mistake. Sometimes that just needs to be said. Maybe you've been told that before. I can attest to the fact that I was a surprise. My parents told me, we weren't planning for you that doesn't mean I was a mistake that means I came according to God's plan and not my parents plan but our struggles in understanding life and its value leads us to some truths that we need to hold on in order to keep the right perspective of life and so this is the first one let's look for another two verses 9 through 11 once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh Hannah got up and went to pray Some of you may know that Leah and I struggled with infertility through five years before having Emma. I've shared with you before her birthday is super special. She was born on August 8th of 2008 at 8.08 p.m. That was God's message to me saying, see, my timing is perfect. But I remember those years very clearly because we were very young, fairly newlywed, seemed healthy, and we could not get pregnant. We fought We argued. We blamed each other, which makes no sense at all. We went to fertility clinics and doctors and specialists. We traveled state lines to try to get some answers. Meanwhile, people around us were having babies. It seemed like crazy. (laughs) People that had planned on it, but it didn't seem like anybody in our sphere was struggling like we were. And so like Hannah, we thought, what is wrong with us? Are we doing something wrong? Are we disobeying God? Are we being sinful? So we began to talk about adoption, and I had the same reservations that most people have. Can we afford to adopt? That's always the number one question. The second one is, what if I get a bad one? (laughs) What a dumb question, right? Let me just tell you two things here. First of all, through the foster system, you get paid to adopt your child. So don't worry about money if that's what God's calling you to. Secondly, the other thing that you need to realize is we're all born with a sinful nature. So there are no bad kids. We're all bad kids, right? Until Jesus gets a hold of our heart and life. So so those are two things that I had to work through in the process. But the big thing for me was I wanted a child to carry on our DNA. I was curious. I wanted to see what what a child would look like that had my DNA and Leah's DNA mixed in, and that was really important to me. So after another argument, I walked out in the field behind my house and literally screamed. I couldn't hold it in any longer, and I cried out to God. I was broken and desperate for answers. By this point, my brother and sister already had kids, and, and I'd felt forgotten and left out. And that was my moment of surrender just like Hannah. Hannah did it in the tabernacle, I did it in a field next to Elizabeth City, EMC. And uh... I surrendered and I no longer demanded God give me children. When, if, or how was now in His hands. And then I realized that any child I had would always be His. That every kid was a gift on loan from God that I would one day have to give back to him. They were always his. So I came back in the house and God led me to the, the passage that Marian's already referred to Romans chapter 8, verse 15. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. I've always loved that passage, but I never understood that it was talking about me being adopted. And so all the negative, contrary things you can think about adoption were melted away when I realized every single person that comes to Jesus Christ is adopted by him. And this endearing discussion of calling him Abba is special. By the way, uh, Jaden's starting to talk more, and so he's trying to say all of this different sisters' names and instead of saying Ava, he says Ava, which I love. It sounds so much like Ava. Um, it's so so special to hear him say her name that way. That's way out of my notes. But when I realized I was adopted by God, it opened my heart to being an adopted father as well. And I I didn't I knew that God didn't want fear to rule my heart, that he had given me Leah and we weren't to fight about blessings, when they were going to come, how were they going to come, and I was confident that I was a child of God. For me, I already understood the value of life. I grew up in this church. We've been a pro-life church. I went on marches and all the rest, even from a young age. That wasn't a lesson I needed to learn, but I think sometimes that's why God enables people to get pregnant who are not planning on it, because they don't understand the value of life, and God wants to teach them the value of life. And so life is most valuable not when it is taken, but when it is given. Huge point here, guys. That's the choice for every pregnant mother. Why would any mother choose to take the life of her child? Because they want to take their life back. They feel like their life, something has been stolen from, from them. This child is stealing my hope, my future my career, my whatever, and, and they want to take back their life, but in order to take back their life, they have to take the life of the child. And, and the opposite choice is to say, this child has been given to me, and my response is to give my life back, to surrender my life for their existence. And so this is a core truth of our Christian faith, that we are called to give freely freely, not to take. God in His abundant blessing wants to give us good gifts, the scripture says. We fall into sin when we take and demand our rights instead of giving freely. And so that's the two opposites, taking or giving. Getting back to the passage, Hannah has gotten to the place where she's willing to give the child back to the service of God if she can only bear him for a few short months and wean him. What Hannah is choosing to be, and I've never seen this before, is she's choosing to be a birth mother putting her child up for adoption. I love this. I love that this is included in Scripture. I have so much respect for a mother who becomes pregnant and says, I cannot care for this child. But this child is valuable, and so I will put it up for adoption. I have a cousin who has multiple children and had to make this choice because where she was at in the stage of life where she was giving birth to the second child of hers, she knew she couldn't care for it well. So she gave this child up for adoption, and I am so proud of her. And she has a relationship with this child and family now to this day. Now all my children have been adopted through the foster care system, but I have no less respect and love for their birth parents who chose to give their children life in less than ideal circumstances. And so that's the truth of all of us as parents. Is we have to give our children back to God in some way, shape, or form. That may be, you know, when you put them in school, That may be when they go off to college. That may be when they marry their spouse. That may be when they they, they choose a path that you wouldn't have chosen for them. Or ultimately, that's when you lay your children in the arms of God, if they're called to home before you. But they're always on loan, they're always His. And that's the attitude that God had to create in Hannah before she was ready to be a mother. This understanding of what life is and the value of life. And so the role of parent, both before and after children, is to realize that our children are gods on loan to us for a season. This isn't just about children. This is about life. And I know I'm speaking about parenting and adoption and all the rest, and, and that doesn't relate to everybody in the room But this principle is true of everything in life. Your health is on loan. Your house is on loan. Your stuff is on loan. Land is on loan. Don't waste your life away trying to hold everything in because one day it will be taken from you, whether forcefully or after you breathe your last and you won't take it with you. And when we understand that everything is a gift from God on loan, There's such freedom and joy in life. You, we can be generous. Verses 19 and 20. The entire family got up early the next morning and went to worship the Lord once more. Then they returned home to Ramah when Elkanah slept with Anna. The Lord remembered her plea. In due time, she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel. For she said, I asked the Lord for him. There's an intimate relationship that happens with God when we surrender to him. He doesn't forget us. He hears our prayers. He hears our cries. I've shared with you um, my struggle with becoming a pastor was I questioned God. I said, God, I have all these hopes and dreams and talents and abilities and all the rest, and if I become a pastor, it'll be wasted. That was my thought at the time. And his answer to me was, you mean my talents, my gifts, my abilities? If you do it for me, isn't that where it finds its worth? And so I realized that all these desires and gifts were given to me on loan and that all the good things he puts in us, he's put in us. It's not of our own making. The name Samuel can mean asked of God or heard by God. I love that it has a double meaning. Hannah says, I asked God and he heard. But us in the pro-life movement the name Samuel God hears the child that has no voice God hears the child in the womb that never gets to scream its first scream of life and he hears that child heard by God verses 24 through 28 when the child was weaned Hannah took him To the tabernacle in Shiloh, they brought along a three-year-old bull for the sacrifice and a basket of flour and some wine. After sacrificing the bull, they brought the boy to Eli. Sir, do you remember me? Hannah asked. I am the very woman who stood here several years ago praying to the Lord. I asked the Lord to give me this boy, and he has granted my request. Now I am giving him to the Lord, and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. And they worshipped the Lord there. The real question in reading this passage is, would Hannah have been willing to give up her son so freely if it hadn't been for the struggle of infertility? The journey had a reason. Look at Abraham. 25 years after the promise, Isaac finally came. And then we have the moment where he says, sacrifice your son for me. Could he have done that? if the answer to the promise had come after one year instead of 25 years? I don't think so. You see, we in our moments think God is being unfair or unjust or He doesn't hear us, but what He's really doing is preparing us to be who we're supposed to be in order to do what He wants to do in our heart life and also the life of our children. So often our struggles and challenges are to change us and to whom we need to be. But when it comes to our children, those same challenges help mold them into who they're supposed to be as well. So I just mentioned Isaac. We talk about the sacrifice moment. Can you imagine your dad about to murder you? (laughs) I have to be obedient to God, son. It's funny, when you read about those, there's hardly anything negative said about Isaac. I think he learned in that moment, God is the one, and I'm going to be dedicated to him no matter what, and my dad was faithful and obedient, and i got to be the same way. We see that with Jacob. His mom struggled with infertility. Joseph, his mother struggled with infertility. Moses, well, his parents didn't struggle with infertility, but... He came at the wrong time, at the wrong place, to the wrong people. Or did he? All those things instilled in him, from birth on up, made him who he was supposed to be to lead God's people. And then even Jesus, you know? Two poor people, away from home, born in a barn, fleeing for his life for his first few years in Egypt. This is God's plan, His perfect plan, planned since the beginning of time? Yes. So, as we get closer to the Christmas season, I want you to remember that. God's perfect plan does not look as clean or as orderly as we think it should. But His plan for you is perfect. This is also true of our firstborn, Emma. Emma. We had to surrender all of our kids and how they came into this world. Only God knew that in a few short years, my wife would get cancer and we wouldn't be able to have any more birth children. We'd already started the adoption process with Hannah. Only God knew that. For us to have our children, we had to go through that struggle early on. God also had to move in this way for the nation of Israel. We're going to see next week. We talked about, and we didn't really touch on Eli or, or Hophni and Phinehas, but the future of the priesthood was wicked, terrible, so much so that God had to kill Hophni and Phinehas off. How is God going to redeem the worship in his nation if Eli and his sons were. were weren't compromising, weren't following. How is he going to do it? If it wasn't going to happen through Eli's family, how was it going to come about? It was going to come about through Hannah, a woman who struggled with infertility and said, I'll give you my son. That's the only way that Samuel could come and be in the position he was to turn the hearts of the people back to God. God has a unique plan for every life, and the more unique the entrance, the more unique the plan for the life and mission of that individual. So you may have looked at your whole life and said, ugh, <laughs> I have had a terrible upbringing, I had a terrible past, I whatever. God says, oh, <laughs> those are my favorite stories. Have you surrendered to him? those hopes and dreams? Have you surrendered to Him those desires He's put in you? Have you already discounted what He can do in your life? We've heard the statement, don't judge a book by its cover. How many bad books have you bought because the cover looked great? Or great books you've never read because the cover is just awful. How many of you have... Known what a movie's about by watching it for five minutes. Let's not do the same, people with, same thing with people, either ourselves or others. Let's not write off life based on how it begins. Life is the most precious gift, beautifully crafted, perfectly timed, and a precious gift freely given. Lord, thank you for all of our children thank you for all the Samuels you've blessed us with let us be people of life who don't take but give let us lay down all our rights and privileges so that others can know you and be set free. Free us from the bondage and heartache, God. Bring us all to that point of breaking where we say, God, I give back to you what I've desired. I trust you in your timing. No matter our age or stage in life, we all have to come to those moments. So as we have this time of reflection, God, meet us right where we are. In your name we pray. Amen.